So the last few sessions, it's ended on a to be continued. And it almost feels like you, sh you should see another to be continued, right? It just kind of ends like that. It's the worst movie ever where the hero just dies, <laughs> doesn't do anything, doesn't live the hero's part. And that's kind of the genius of the book of Jonah because the book of Jonah is kind of leaving you hanging in order to ask the question, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to be like Jonah or not like Jonah? How are you going to respond to God's unbelievable grace and patience towards your enemies? I want to start with chapter 3, verse 10, to get our context and our bearings of what just happened. But before we do, I want to pray again, like we've done the last few sessions. And I know that we're tired. I know that it's been a lot going on, a lot of emotions, and we still need the Lord. We always need the Lord, and I want to make sure our hearts are open again. So would you pray with me? Close your eyes if you can. Let's pray for our own hearts. God, speak to us again. Would you be so kind to speak to us and meet us again? Again, Lord. Help us focus on you. Help us tune into only your voice. Help us recognize the voice of the enemy who tries to twist and distort your motivations and your purposes. Just give to Jesus all the different stresses, the pains, the different things that are coming into your mind or you're distracting you or plaguing you. Just give it to Jesus right now. And then would you take the next minute to pray for those sitting around you and as you guys have had cabin discussions and been walking with people in your youth group, you, you know the different stories, you know the different challenges the doubts, the pains, the triumphs, would you pray for them now? Just think of people in your group to pray for right now that God would work in them this morning again. And then one final time, <clears throat> would you pray for me that God would empower me to serve you well? Fill me afresh with his spirit. Help me accurately communicate God's word to you this morning. Father, thank you for this weekend. And thank you that it is just the beginning for so many. Pray for your blessing and your hand over this time. Help me be your servant. <clears throat> Empower me. Help me preach the truth and nothing but the truth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. Well, chapter 3 last night ended abruptly. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do 
to them, and he did not do it. And Jonah sees this relenting of God's rightful judgment upon Nineveh, and he is not happy, as we've just seen in the skit. I don't know what to call it. Verse one of chapter four, would you read this with me out loud? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. This is strong language. He's not like, well, it's not my preference. He's mad. He's infuriated. But remember, what were the Assyrians like? You remember last night I shared with you just a glimpse, a rated R kind of glimpse of how despicable and horrible of a people they were? And so keeping that in mind about the Assyrians, and imagine if you were one of the victims of the Assyrians, you were related to someone who was slaughtered, mutilated by them. Is it so hard for us to believe that Jonah would be angry? It's so hard to understand why he would flee. See, we see Jonah here, and it's so easy for us to judge Jonah harshly. Man, Jonah, how could you not be gracious and forgiving and merciful? How, how could you not celebrate that God is showering mercy upon these people? Well, it's easy to say that when it's not your enemies, right? It's easy to say that if you're a third party looking from the outside. We understand why he's so angry. And the thing is, Jonah's anger is partially right. What I mean by that is Nineveh is full of sin, full of wickedness and rebellion, and even God was angry. Remember the king of Nineveh said, maybe he will relent from his fierce anger. So in one sense, it is right for God to be angry, and Jonah is sharing that attribute of anger. But the difference is God doesn't stop there. God isn't only just angry, as we talked about over and over again. He's merciful. Look at Psalm 30, verse five with me. Did you read this out loud with me? For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. Isn't that sweet? Yes, he does get angry. And in fact, he wouldn't be a good God if he didn't get angry at certain things, right? And yet, his anger is but for a moment when people turned their face towards him. He is eager. His heart is eager to extend forgiveness and mercy. He doesn't need to be convinced or persuaded or begged. His heart is eager and open. And we see more of Jonah's heart in this next verse, and it's quite shocking. I'm gonna try to read it slowly so that we can actually grasp this. Verse two, and he prayed to Yahweh and said, oh Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Finally, we know the reason why Jonah fled. He didn't flee because he was afraid that he would get killed or skinned alive by the Syrians. He had a picture of God that is so gracious and merciful to all, so ready to forgive, so slow to anger, that he flees because he's afraid that the Ninevites would receive mercy, and he doesn't want them to receive mercy. He hates them so much that his greatest fear is not losing his life, but that they would not lose theirs. 
That's his greatest fear. He wants, he hates them so much, he's so full of hatred towards the people, towards that race of Assyrians, that he wants all of them annihilated and he's afraid of them getting mercy. That is shocking. And there is so much to learn here with what Jonah just said. We're gonna try to unpack it carefully. Jonah is actually speaking back to Yahweh words that Yahweh said about himself in Exodus. This is a famous line. If any of you guys were here uh, for summer camp, for uh, Jaira, anybody here for summer camp? Okay, wait, did they do the same theme? Attributes of God? You guys talked about Exodus, so I'm sure you guys memorized it, but Exodus 34. Jonah is repeating back to Yahweh what Yahweh said about himself, except he is leaving some things out. Now, let's look at this. It's one of the most pillar passages in the Old Testament. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity in transgress, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is one of the most conclusive, thorough descriptions of God's character in his heart. So if you were taking notes or you brought your own Bible, man, mark that, ear, doggy ear that page. This is an important passage that you can go back to if you wanna know what God is like. Often we see what God does, but this passage very clearly explained, explains from God's own, God's own mouth what he's like. Now, that's the original passage I just shared with you in Exodus 34. Look at what Jonah quotes and notice what he leaves out. If we can go back on this slide, back to verse two, what does he leave out? And then if you could skip forward to Exodus 34 again. The hint, it's, it's towards the end. He will, yeah, who said that? Say it loud. Yes, that's right. He will by no means clear the guilty. There's a ton here, but for the sake of time, let me focus on a couple of things. What is Jonah doing here? Okay, I know that some of you guys are like kind of baffled and confused because that was like a lot for you real quick. But let me try to simplify it, okay? Jonah is conveniently leaving out the fact that God will not by no means clear the guilty. In other words, God is not in the business of calling the in guilty innocent. That's not what God does. But Jonah, from his perspective, doesn't believe like God, that God is being consistent with what he said in Exodus 34. He thinks that God is just being this lovey-dovey God, mushy God, that all he wants to do is be gracious and he doesn't care about wickedness. He doesn't care about the evil that's come before him. He doesn't care about all the atrocious things they've done. He's gonna let them get away. See, one of the challenges in this fallen world that we live in is that people will wrong you deeply. And one of the challenges that we will feel towards them when it comes to forgiveness and loving them is that we're afraid to forgive them because you, know, you feel have a sense that if you forgive them, you're gonna let them get away with it. If anyone in here has ever been deeply wronged by someone in their life, maybe a family member, experienced traumatic abuse and pain, betrayal, hurt, one of the hardest things to do is let them go and have a loving heart and forgiving heart towards them because you're afraid that if you do, they're gonna get away with it. Anyone know what I'm talking about? 
And that's what Jonah's feeling. He's feeling like God's gonna let them get away with it. He doesn't trust God's character. He doesn't trust God's heart. He thinks that God is only one way. And remember I said this yesterday, our temptation with God, because his, his ways are higher than our ways, because he's not like us, he doesn't fit our categories neatly. We can't comprehend a God that is angry simultaneously in love. It doesn't make sense to us because we're not God. We don't operate that way. We're one way or the other. And so when we read about a God who is both simultaneously angry and, and, and furious towards our wickedness and yet full of mercy and love, we don't get that. And, and what we do is like little children. You know how little children, if you have little brothers and sisters, or, or maybe you do this because we all do this at some, some way, is that when you, when you look at a movie or read a book with a little kid, they're gonna ask you oftentimes, bad guy, but good guy. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. They want quickly to categorize these people in nice boxes. Are they this way or are they that way? And the tricky thing about the God of the Bible, and one of the reasons why you can trust that this God of the Bible is real, is that he doesn't nicely fit in categories. If you are a skeptic, and you come from a non-Christian background, and you think God is just this one way, and you read Jonah carefully, you're like, actually, Jonah kind of transcends my categories of what I would assume God is like. Because he is merciful, and yet he is also a God of judgment. He doesn't really fit. And one of the challenges all of us are gonna face throughout our life is we're gonna have times where we're going to disagree with God and his heart, his attributes, and we're going to go into one or two camps, or three camps. One camp, you're gonna just straight up re reject God, okay? Another camp is that you're going to try to remake God to be just loving and merciful, and then all your sin doesn't matter. I know I said this last night, but I'm gonna keep saying it because it's important. Or the other camp is that you're gonna make God just this wrathful God only. So what is God? Is he, is, is he a God of justice or a God of mercy? Yes, yes. And that's a good thing. And what that does is it increases awe and humility because this God is not like us. His ways are higher than our ways. And that's why I love that song. Man, that song, but teach me to love your ways. Oh, love that song. And it's so good to sing that regularly because God's gonna do things and you're gonna see things in here that you're gonna be like, I don't get your ways, God. And part of following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, increasingly saying, God, I don't get your ways, but I'm gonna trust your ways. And the more and more you trust his ways and take steps towards his ways, the more and more you start to see things the way he does. And you're like, oh, so that's why you do your ways. Now that was a long tangent, but that's what Jonah is doing. He is picking and choosing the God that he wants, like a salad bar. You know, we've had a buffet all week, and some of you guys are terrible eaters, and you just, you're just eating ketchup, you know, and just eating whatever you want, right? And that's how we treat the Bible. We're like, okay, well, I like these passages about God's mercy, and I like these passages about so-and-so and this, but I don't like those passages, so I'm gonna just kinda sweep them under the rug, or I'm gonna kinda re-edit them. And that's what Jonah is doing. He's cutting and pasting, listen, just because someone is preaching from the Bible doesn't mean they're being biblical. If you turn on the TV or go to YouTube or watch some influencer pastor on TikTok, they can take the Bible and make it sound like anything. And that's why I keep saying, what should you do? Check what? Check the work. Grab your Bibles, look at the context. You remember if those of you guys who joined my seminar, never read a verse, always read the surrounding area because any pastor can manipulate you if they're gifted enough and they cut it well enough with the video and the lighting to make you think that the Bible says something it doesn't mean. 
So you need to know your Bibles well, and you need to check your work, their work. Check your pastor's work. Pastors here, I hope you are encouraged by that. They'll keep you in check. You can't be lazy. We need an army of Bereans. That's a, another word I won't get into right now. So Jonah, he feels like God is in the wrong. He is wrong to give his enemies mercy. Wrong, 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 God. They don't deserve it. Is he right about that? Is he right that they don't deserve mercy? Yes, he is right. Remember, mercy is not required. Mercy is graciously withholding what they deserve. What do they deserve? It starts with a J. Justice. That's right, they deserve justice. Yet God is giving them mercy. And yet what is so insane and ironic about this story is that who is the most guilty person that we've read about in this story so far? Jonah. It's just so funny because some of you over here were cheering, Jojo, Jojo. I'm like, man, have you read this? Have you been reading this? Jojo's a chump, man. (laughs) Jojo's trash and his theology's trash and and you don't want to be like Jojo. (laughs) Jojo's goal is is, is to say like, what would I not do, right? Like, get one of those bracelets. What would jo- Jonah not do, right? Do that. Jonah's the most guilty person in the story. Remember, throughout this whole story, the people who shouldn't get it, who shouldn't be righteous, who shouldn't be moral, shouldn't trust God, are the ones doing it, like the pagan sailors who are idolaters. They turn to Yahweh, and then the king of Assyria, who's an evil dictator, leading genocide in the entire kingdom. And yet Jonah, the man who grew up with the Torah, who grew up with the law, who grew up in Sunday school or Saturday school. You know, they, he grew up with all this stuff, and yet he's the one who doesn't get it. He's the one who's most guilty, the most wicked. The reality is, if God wasn't merciful, who wouldn't be alive at this point? Speaking about the story specifically. Jonah. If God wasn't merciful, Jonah should have just drowned. Jonah should have just gotten just destroyed right when he said no and started to flee before he got to step out the door. Jonah has benefited from God's mercy and yet he's not okay with others benefiting from it. He is so blinded by his self-righteousness, his rage, his hatred, his racism, that he can't see that he deserves judgment just as much as the Assyrians do. He can't see it. And what is the challenges is that we all have a very acute sensitivity towards other people's sins and often are very blind and dull towards our own. I can name a bunch of different sins and struggles in this room and a lot of you guys are gonna be like, oh yeah, yeah. are you hearing that? Bro, are you hearing that? Girl, are you hearing that? That's you, he's talking about you, right? And it's talking about you. We have this tendency to be just like Jonah. We are more grieved by the sin in other people than we are grieved by the sin inside of our hearts. See, if you see yourself basically as a worthy, good person, just, you know, no one's perfect, but basically worthy, that, that, then you'll believe that God owes you good things. Remember this bargaining, transactional relationship I've been talking about? You think that I'm, I'm just, I'm basically pretty good. I'm better than my friends, better than my non-churchgoers. If that's you, then grace is shocking to you. It's not shocking when you get it. Sometimes it is. But it's mainly shocking when you see other, people's, other people receive it. It feels like God is not being fair. 
You get resentful when God seems to be blessing people in ways they don't deserve. They don't deserve that. God, do you know what they did? And then, when God commands you, and he does, to be gracious towards your enemies, gracious towards undeserving, ungrateful people, we buck at that, because we think they don't deserve it. I've earned my place with you, God. I've worked hard. They haven't put the work in like I have. You know, we don't have time to get into this, but this chapter is very much like the parable of the prodigal son, or Tim Keller likes to call it the prodigal God. So if you want to put that down in your notes to look at, talk with your youth pastor sometime about how Jonah is like the elder brother who doesn't love the father, truly, but his whole life he's worked for the father. His whole life he's dutifully slaved, enslaved himself, working hard in the, in the fields, and yet what you see come out of his heart in the parable of the prodigal son is that he didn't love the father, he was just trying to earn his way trying to put the father in his debt, and then he resents his father for showing mercy to his younger, wayward brother. That's another thing, but if you grew up in the church, you gotta know that parable well. You gotta know that one well, because we are so prone to walk into becoming the elder brother, judging other people, and, and, and being very, very unmerciful when God shows mercy to, towards other people. It's easy to celebrate God's mercy if it's for us, but what about our enemies? It's easy, y'all, for us to judge Jonah. We say, we want grace and mercy for everyone. Love wins for everyone. But what about that girl who just gossiped and betrayed you, slandered you? Do you want love to win for her? Do you want mercy for that person who slandered you, made up lies? What about that boy who constantly bullies you at school. You want mercy for him? You want God to be gracious to him? What about that family member who abused you? You want mercy and grace towards them? How do you feel about them receiving God's mercy? When you see yourselves as undeserving of God's mercy, an incredible recipient of God's unfathomable grace, when he, you deserve justice, and Jesus got the justice you deserved. When you really believe that with all of your heart, then what flows out of your heart is not judgment, ruthlessness, but mercy. If you struggle in here being forgiving and gracious towards other people, it's because you still don't get how gracious and forgiving God has been towards you. Forgiveness towards other people, whenever as, as a pastor I counsel people, Whenever I counsel people about forgiving someone who's wronged them, I don't try to get them to muster it up. Hey, you gotta forgive them because God commands it. I, I always go back to the gospel because when you struggle forgiving, even if it's the greatest, most deepest wound, it's often because you have lost sight of what God has done for you. So listen, what God has done to you, students, he wants to now do through you. What God has done to you, he wants to do through you. You can't do what he's called you to do unless you realize what he's done for you. It flows. Let me show you a handful of passages that show you this reality. Would you read this out loud? I know some of you guys are so tired, and, and I know some of you guys are, I, I mean, you're, you're sleeping, some of you, and, and I'm not mad at you, I, I get it. Some of you guys were maybe up late talking about what God has done, I get it, but try to track with me a little bit longer, okay? Try to track with me a little longer. If you need to, just... Do a quick, don't slap your, someone else, but slap yourself, get up, 
drink some water, whatever it takes, okay? Lock in. We only have a little bit more time, and you guys go back down the hill. <clears throat> Would you read this out loud, loudly with me, so that it kind of wakes you up? Ready? So now, I am giving you a new commandment. Love each Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Is the bat, are you guys in the balcony? I know I neglect you, I forget about you, but are you guys reading out loud too? I didn't hear you guys. Yeah, all right, all right, good. It's like the backyard gnomes, like the, the, the upstairs people. Hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, you're the ones in the store who received mercy, not them, right? You're the good. So anyway, okay. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples a new commandment and he says, he doesn't say, hey, love people. Okay, good, good luck. He says, love them what? Just as I love you. Let's keep going. Paul is speaking in Ephesians chapter four, verse 32. Would you read this out loud, loudly? Come on, Back upstairs, you do it, you, you lead the way. Instead, be kind. Does he say, yeah, uh, be tenderhearted and forgiving one another and be kind? No. Just as. Everyone say, just as. just as. Everything God calls you to do, he's doing because he's already done for you. He's already done it himself. That's the difference between gospel empowered preaching and sermons and moralistic preaching that you may hear, sadly. Moralistic preaching is, hey, the Bible says to do it. Uh, God has commanded it, go do it. Christians ought to do that. That's not, that's not biblical preaching. And I'm sorry if you guys grew up with that kind of teaching. That's, that's honestly why Phil Vischer repented for the VeggieTales series and he created his new series. Because Phil Vischer, if anyone, anyone grew up with VeggieTales? If you read Phil Vischer's biography, Me, Myself, and Bob, he repents for VeggieTales. Because what he realized is over the years, as he started to go deeper into God's word and understanding God's grace and what the gospel is, he realized that the VeggieTales wasn't actually teaching Christianity. What they were teaching you is moralism. And that's do these good things because it's good to be those good things and God tells you to be good things. God loves you, so, go, so be nice. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. Any moralistic Religion can do the same thing. What the Christianity is, is that we have been so wrong, we have messed up so badly, and God is justice, justice should punish us, but yet in God in his kindness, Jesus takes our place for us, and now that God has forgiven us, he's transforming us, and what he did to us, he wants to do through us. So be kind just as God has been kind to you. So listen, students, how do you have it in yourself to be kind to that kid in your youth group that's so annoying and hard to be kind to? How do you be kind to him? You're kind to him, what? Just as God has been kind to you. How can you love your annoying brother and sister or be patient with your parents who can be so difficult at times? Because God is patient with you. How can you forgive the people who deeply wrong you? Because God has been very forgiving towards you when you've deeply wronged him and you still deeply wrong him. Are you, are you tracking with me? This is the difference between moralism, just do good things because the Bible says it, and true biblical Christianity, 
what gospel-driven living is. One, one more verse, Romans 15, 7. This is really important, especially in, in light of all the challenges with peer pressure and cliques in school and church. Would you read this out loud, Romans 15, 7? Therefore, I was pretty bad reading, but it's acceptable. Satisfactory. What, what do you see again here? What's that key word? Just as. Just as. Accept others. Other translations say welcome. So how can you welcome that kid who comes to a youth group that just seems so weird and different? Because God has welcomed you. God has accepted you, and you're weird, and you have issues. And if you still don't believe you have issues and that you're weird and you need mercy, you still don't get the gospel. You're no better than anyone else. You know, one of the reasons why you guys can connect with me as a preacher is because I legitimately don't think I'm better than you. I legitimately believe that I need mercy every day and God has been very kind to me. So I don't talk to you or preach to you looking down at you. I really don't. It doesn't come out the way I speak or my mannerisms because it's not in my heart. And for so many Christians, we subtly believe we're better than other people. <laughs> those unbelievers. <laughs> those Democrats. <laughs> or those Republicans, depending on where you're at with that. Thank God that I'm not like them. No. No, you are like them. You are like them, and God has been merciful and kind to you. real quiet here. Got one amen on that one. You're like, oh, you went to politics, Sam. You can't go there. Jonah 4.3. Jonah's idol is revealed. Look at 4.3 with me. Therefore now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. <laughs> Do you guys? Oh, it's not up there, but it will be soon. It won't be up there. Sorry. In verse 3, Jonah is begging God for, to be killed. He can't handle it. Do you guys remember the other day I talked about one of the signs of an idol is that you just couldn't imagine living if you didn't have it? Jonah can't imagine living without the Assyrians dying. Jonah clearly shows his idol. He idolized his nation over Yahweh. What is an idol? I'm just gonna put a slide up again from Tim Keller just to remind you. This idol is all of us will struggle what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Let me ask you a question. Why did God pick Jonah? I mean, of all the prophets he could pick or raise up, why Jonah? Because God wants to do work in Jonah. He doesn't need Jonah. He could send other people. It's not like Jonah was like this most gifted guy. Jonah was terrible. And yet God used him. Because God is not just trying to use him. God's trying to work in him. God wants to have Jonah encounter Jonah's mortal enemies so that Jonah sees his enemies and realizes and exposes for the wickedness in his own heart. God is doing that to lovingly draw him out so that God can change him. Look at Jonah 4.4. 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? 
Notice that God doesn't just strike him down or rebuke him. Hey, that's a bad attitude, Jonah. No, 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 no. He's drawing his heart out with questions. Hey, is your anger justified? Really, do you want to be angry at me giving mercy to people? The NLT writes it this way on the screen. Yahweh replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? He's trying to draw out his heart. Jonah, though, ignores his question and just keeps going on his way. Verse five, Jonah went out of the city and sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself. There were a tent, a shelter. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So Jonah ignores God's words. Jonah ignores God trying to woo him and draw him out, draw his heart out. And Jonah says, no, 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 I don't want to hear that. So Jonah pitches a tent in front of the city, hoping that God would either change his mind or the Syrians would repent of the repenting and that he would just get a fireworks show of just fire and brimstone just wrecking that entire city. He's, all right, let's see what happens here. I'm gonna wait 40 days. But God is going to continue to teach Jonah patiently. I want you to notice how patient and merciful God is with Jonah and how patient he is with you and I. Verse six. And Yahweh arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plants. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant, so it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. (laughs) Isn't Jonah funny? God is appointed with his power and authority, his sovereignty for a plant to cover him up in the shade because of the heat. And then the first time we ever see Jonah happy in this book is right here. He's so happy because this plant is shading him, just like Jojo was happy for the lemonade. And as you're watching Jojo so happy for the lemonade, are you like, bro, seriously, that, like you're really that happy over the lemonade? I mean, we got a lot, of, I mean, it's just over in the cafeteria. It's not that big of a deal, bro, right? And and that's kind of the point. The shade is like, really? You're that happy? That's the thing that makes you most happy, the fact that you got shade and ease your discomfort? But then God appoints a worm through his power, his authority, his sovereignty over all nature, and the worm eats at the stem, and then his shade goes away. And then God, with his power and authority, sovereignly sends an east wind, and the sun beats down at him a crazy amount of heat. You know, not like just a little heat that you're a little uncomfortable, but a kind of heat that makes you want to that's sweltering, that makes you just want to faint, that kind of heat. And then Jonah wants to die. <laughs> what is God doing here? It, at first reading, it looks like Jonah is being bullied by God, is it, doesn't it? It could be, it could look like that. But God is actually not bullying him, there's something more beautiful and kind going on here. God is patiently showing Jonah how selfish he is. God is using these examples sovereignly to expose Jonah how misplaced his priorities are. He's trying to help him see how out of whack his heart is. He cares more about losing a plant than he does about people. God is showing him, and this is something you're gonna see throughout the scripture, from lesser to greater. He's showing him, do you see this in this little lesser situation? How much more this? Jonah, are you sure your priorities are in order? Are you sure you're responding rightly? 
Jonah's like, yes, I am. Of course I am. And yet God will continue to reason with him patiently. Look at verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, would you read this with me? Is it right for you to be angry? Why doesn't God just let him die? Because God is patient and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Because that's the kind of God we have. Verse 10, then Yahweh said, you feel sorry about the plant. And this is the end of the book, okay? Would you read this out loud? And then, then, then you've read the entire book of Jonah, okay? Read this out loud with me. Then the Lord said, Oh. <laughs> okay, okay, I get it, I get it. COVID, you guys did school from home, reading's a little weak. I get it, I understand. I get it, get it. I know you guys are all functionally like two grades behind. I'm sorry for you, okay. Hey, but listen, congratulations. You read through your first book of the Bible if you haven't done that before. Again, God is patiently showing Jonah from lesser to greater how awful and out of whack his priorities are. Jonah doesn't even realize that there are people in the city like kids and babies who have never done harm to Israel. And yet Jonah lumps them all together in his hatred and his racism. He doesn't want any of them to be spared. He doesn't value their lives. He just values the life of a little plant. God's like, Jonah, like you, you haven't even had a long relationship with this plant. It's been like with you for a day. It's like, oh, it means everything to me. It's supposed to be a joke. It's supposed to be exposing an absurd. And God uses these absurd examples to expose our hearts. And you may laugh at Jonah, and you should laugh at Jonah in one way, but how, how absurd are we how we prioritize our phones over God? Right? Prioritize a sport, putting a ball through a hoop. You know? Prioritize how we look over God. We're, we're like Jonah. <laughs> and you see God is patient with him and he's patient with you and me. And so the plot twist is here that it doesn't end on a happy note. It just ends like this. And this is actually one of the few books of the Bible that ends like this. Usually there's a little bit more closure. But I think that's purposeful because it leaves you questioning the future. It leaves you questioning what will Jonah do? How will Jonah respond to God's gracious patience towards him. And then the question is, how are you gonna to respond to this book? What are you gonna do about it, this message? Are you okay with God giving mercy to your enemies? Are you okay with God giving mercy towards those who deeply wronged you? And then let me take it one step further. Listen to me. Are you willing to be the one who God uses to bring mercy to them? See, it's one thing for you to say, you know what, God, I can't stand those people, but you know what, you are merciful to me, so yeah, fine, you be merciful to them, but just do it over there, on the other side of the yard, away from me. I don't want any part to do with it, but yeah, fine, fine. You give mercy, they repent, that's great. But what if God doesn't just extend mercy to them, but actually is using you to be the agent of mercy towards them? Agent of mercy towards that person who wronged you more than anyone else in the world. You okay with that? 
that's really challenging in testing how much you have received and believed how gracious and merciful God has been to you. That changes everything, right? See, I, I want you guys to, to continue to see the beauty of Jesus and how he's different and better than Jonah. Let's look at what G Jesus does. See, Jonah pitches a tent outside the city, waiting and hoping to see the whole city destroyed, but Jesus is greater and not like him. Look at Luke chapter 19. This is right after Jesus rides on a donkey. He's, he's actually riding on a donkey, moving towards Jerusalem, towards the place of his execution. Um, I think it should be on the screen. Nope, it won't be on the screen. Sorry, it didn't come up on my slides. Listen to this. But as Jesus came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. Jesus begins to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace, but now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. This is, if you're taking notes, Luke 19, 41 through 42. Luke 19, 41 through 42. I'm sorry it's not on the slides. That's my fault, not them. They're awesome. They're so good back there. Again, if you ever want to come to Minneapolis and do our slides and do our music and make disciples, please come. Sorry, Hume. Um, they're not going to come, guys. We pay them nothing. <laughs> but I want to notice some, highlight something real quick. The word here is wept. Jesus wept for them. You know what wept is in Greek? Wept. <laughs> it's, it's mourning. It's like he's grieving because he lost a loved one. Jesus is weeping and mourning for the city, for their wickedness and for their impending judgment because they're gonna reject him. He's weeping for the very people who are, are about to reject him and throw him on a cross. He's weeping for those people. That's the heart of Christ. Even though he is just to punish sinners, he will weep while he does it. As Ezekiel says, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. See, God does not fit in our categories neatly. Even though when God is just to execute judgment on the wicked, he does it with tears. He does it with a broken heart. Whatever the world portrays God to be like, know that they are lying if you believe that God is unfeeling and hardened. He is deeply emotional in all the right ways you should be emotional. He deeply feels and hurts. He feels that towards Jerusalem, and I tell you, he feels that towards you and me when we sin. A deep anguish, deep pain, a deep love. And this great love and compassion changes us if we receive it. When you really believe that you are an enemy of God because of your idolatry and your treason, and yet God had mercy on you as an enemy, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, or Romans 5.10, that our friendship with God was restored by his death while we were still enemies, if you really believe that, that will change your heart towards other people. You remember in the first day I said that this book gives us the cure towards racism. Do you remember I said that? See, this is it. If you truly believe you do not deserve mercy and that you're a sinner needing grace, what that does is it transforms your heart to be a heart of generous generosity and grace towards people who are not like you, people who don't treat you well, people who are ungrateful, people who don't look like you, smell like you, act like you. And all of us here have different sensi sensitivities. There are some of you who somebody really rubs you wrong and repulses you while one of your friends, it's not a big deal. But regardless of where you're at, this gospel changes our hearts to have a heart that is for people who are not like us, who don't look like us, who don't love like us, 
And if you struggle with loving people in your youth group or your school or your neighborhood or your family who aren't like you, that's just further evidence that you still are new to understanding the gospel. You're immature in understanding how much God has been kind towards you, how merciful, how despicable you are apart from God's grace and his kindness towards you. See, that's not popular for me to say, but, but as you guys know, I'm gonna say it because the word says it. So listen, guys. We're gonna do two things. I wanna commission you to be a better Jonah, and then I wanna talk to you guys about how to bring this back from the hill and then talk about Jesus and just celebrate Jesus. So listen, you are called to be a better Jonah to the world. You remember last night we talked about Romans 10, 9, if you confess your, with your mouth Jesus is Lord? What follows that? is a call for us to share that good news with those who have not heard it yet. And so even though you may be sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, God wants to do through you what he did to you last night. If you put your hope and trust in Jesus last night, he wants to now use you as an instrument of mercy, of good news, to share that with those who don't know that news yet. This news, this good news, this gospel is not for us to hoard and keep to ourselves, but to share widely to the world. So I want to challenge you. Who are the the Ninevites in your world, in your life, that God is calling you to share the gospel with, to love? Who are the enemies that God wants you to especially reach out to? God doesn't call us to only reach out to Ninevites in our life. Everybody is free game. But he especially wants to call you to reach out to those who aren't like you. Especially calls you to reach those that repulse you, that challenge you, that expose the the hypocrisy still that dwells in our hearts that we need to kill. Who are those people? I want you to journal that, pray that, ask God over the next week. Who are the people that God is calling you to be an agent of mercy like Romans 10 calls us to be? Now, I want to share a few quick things about thriving when you go back home. I need to, I need to speed up because I preach too long. So, how do you bring this home, guys? Because I know one of you told me last night, actually multiple of you told me last night, you're like, I don't want to lose this. Anybody know, know what I'm feeling? You're like, I've done this before at Hume. I don't want to go back home and go right back to my old life. Anybody feel like that? So, how do you... Keep this, and indeed, not just keep it, keep growing. Where Hume, what happened this weekend is just the foundation, okay? I'm gonna fly through this, so if you can't keep up, take notes, and maybe someone can share it with you on the bus. So first of all, you need to have a heart posture of never stop repenting. Listen, repentance is at one time, it's daily. It's all throughout the day. If you get back on the throne of your heart, get right back off, Jesus, forgive me, and he will forgive you. And that's our lifestyle, never ending, okay? Every time you feel the temptation to remake God, reject God, reject that feeling, reject that that's a lie from the serpent. Listen, everybody I've ever walked with who fallen away from Christ did not do it in one decision or one night. They did it with lots of micro decisions throughout the days and weeks and months and their heart got harder and more warped. No one falls away from Christ in one moment. It's moments. And every single time you say, no, God, I know better this time. No, God, this is a better way. No, God, I'm going to go this way. What happens is your heart gets warped and warped, and then it it manifests into really, really dark things. 
So say yes to God, be a yes man. Everything he says, yes God, I don't understand your ways. Yes God, yes God. He's gonna confront you with some things this week. You say, I don't like that, but yes God, I trust you, you're trustworthy. If you died for me, I could trust your heart even though I don't get your plans. Just say yes, 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 yes. And the second thing is I wanna challenge you is you gotta have a plan. Do you know Satan already has a plan for you? You know Satan is already laying traps for you right when you enter the doors of your home. He's already got traps for you when you go back to school. He already knows, he's been studying you. He, he and his demons have been studying you your whole life. He knows what makes you tick. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your temptations. He knows what's gonna just set you off and discourage you. He's already got a plan, but do you? You gotta have a better plan than him. And what scripture says is we're not ignorant of his schemes. You gotta have a plan. So it's on the screen right now. You guys take a picture of this. You, don't, you probably can't take notes quickly. First, get super involved in your church. They can take you further than I can right here from this stage. Preaching is good, but it's not everything. It's limited, it's overrated. Get super involved, submit to the leaders at your church, let them disciple you into maturity. Again, this is just the beginning. This is a lifestyle of following Jesus increasingly, becoming a disciple and becoming a disciple maker eventually. I want you to pray about it and ask someone in your church to disciple you. Someone who's crazy in love with Jesus who knows their Bible well to disciple you. And they're gonna call you to do things you're not gonna like. And that's the point. They see things you don't see yet. They know things you don't know yet. So you're gonna disagree with them at times. Submit yourself to them. Talk to the, your leaders about baptism. That's a little tricky. Every church has different baptismal practices and processes. Maybe you don't need to get baptized. Maybe yesterday was just a rededication. Maybe you need to get baptized. Talk to them about baptism. That's really important. And the next thing, get a band of brothers and sisters. Get a band of people who were in the trenches with you this weekend, and you guys are gonna hold each other accountable. You guys are gonna fight for each other. You guys are gonna encourage each other along. When one starts stumbling, the other can hold them up and pray for each other. I want you guys to sit down with some leaders, people wiser than you, people who know you well, and come up with a fight plan on how to continue to grow when you go back off this hill. You have to come up with a fight plan. You can't just assume things will be fine. So how do you come up with a fight plan? How can you, here's a key question, how can you replicate Hume in your normal life? And then that will help you come up with your game plan. What I mean by that is when you're at Hume, you're hearing like two sermons a day, you're getting worship all the time, you're not on your phones. You can't take Hume with you, but you can replicate a lot of the rhythms and habits of Hume. You get Bible study, you're talking with people about what's on your heart, you're praying a lot. All these things you can do in the normal days of life. Does that make sense? What do you need to add to your life and what do you need to take out from your life? Those are two important questions you need to think about. What do you need to add to your life, what do you need to take? Well, what I mean by adding, pick a place, pick a plan, pick a time. Read through the Bible with others. Pick a place, pick a time, pick a plan. Commit to giving yourself to know this whole book and observing it all the rest of your life, over and over again, over and over again. Just keep going back over, pouring over this, letting God know, reveal who he is. Listen, we do not fit God into our life. We do not fit time with God into our life, but we fit our whole life around time with God. When you go back, if you want Jesus to be first, you need to treat him like he's first. You can't, like I said, divorce belief in action. You can't say Jesus is first and actually live like he's not first. So if he's first, what would it look like if something's first in your life? If you were an Olympic athlete, what would you do differently? It would change your diet, your sleep, where you, what you do with your free time. It would change everything about you, right? And so if Jesus is gonna be number one, if Jesus is gonna be your everything, 
You're going to have to reorient your entire life around Jesus and his mission, Jesus and his ways, not try to fit him in what your agenda and your ways are. Does that make sense? Can I, can I get an amen for that one? Yeah, yeah I know. Oh, oh, amen. Oh, that's hard, Sam. It is hard, but it's worth it. It's life. And then come up with a list of fighter verses with your friends and your, your mentors. What are verses you need to write down and memorize that you can have in your back pocket to fight the temptations that you specifically are more susceptible towards? We all have different weaknesses. Okay, next thing. What do you need to take away? Listen, guys, this right here is maybe one of the greatest hindrances to your spiritual life. I mean it. There are very, very smart people getting paid millions, and all they do night and day is try to figure out how to get your attention on this because that's how they make money. It's called the attention economy. All they're doing is trying to help you get off of life and reality onto this. So I challenge you to ask, it's not on the screen, but get, get a copy of this book with your youth group, your, even ask your parents to read it with you. It's called My Tech Wise Life by Andy and Amy Crouch. We need to redeem technology and social media and not be used by it. We want it to serve us to become the best person God has called us to be and not be abused by it all the time. Listen, maturity doesn't mean that you don't need any accountability. I'm 33, I'm a pastor, and I have blockers on my phone so I can say, say focus on God. I can't use social media longer than 15 minutes a day. It times out on my phone. Because I know that if I do more than that, I'm gonna be super distracted and my soul will be busy, and slowly but surely, I'll get climbed right back onto the throne of my heart. That's just me, I'm not saying you have to do that, but you need to do something. TikTok, Instagram, these things are not helpful for the soul to thrive. I know that sometimes they can be. I know Hume has Instagram, I have Instagram. I'm not saying you can't use it. I'm just saying that you gotta redeem it and be very careful with it, okay? All right, I gotta keep going. Um, there's a bunch of books on the next screen. If you could just take a picture of them as a leader. I think these are helpful places to start. I know it's a long list. There's two slides, but these are ones I, can, I recommend that are readable for a middle school level that gives you a lot of things. So if you could take a picture of that. The next, next slide, please. Oh, there's one more slide after that too, but this You Can Change is super helpful. This one is super important if you struggle with the fear of man like most of us do. It's a condensed youth version of the, the book When People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch, that one. Okay, I think that's it. Now, let me just end, and then there's maybe one more page. Okay, those are some things that you guys can consider reading. Now, I know I'm going long, so I'm gonna just end with this. Let's just talk about how Jesus is better than Jonah. Okay, stick with me. It's gonna just be two minutes, one minute. Jonah ran from his enemies, but Jesus is greater. He ran towards his enemies. While Jonah is sleeping to escape reality and ignore what God is calling to, Jesus is greater. He's sleeping at peace in a boat, not because he's escaping the Father's plan, because he's in the Father's plan, because he holds the whole world in his hands. While Jonah gets up scared from his life because of the storm, Jesus is greater, wakes up at peace and calms his disciples down and speaks to the storm and the storm obeys him. Jonah, the guilty one, was sacrificed on behalf of the pagan sailors and thrown into the sea. Jesus is greater, and he's the innocent one and is sacrificed for all of our sins. And remember how the king of Assyria took off his royal robes of the symbols of his authority 
and humbled himself, Jesus is like him but better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is a better king who takes off his symbols, his power, his authority. He did not cling to his power as, uh, as being God, but laid it down and humbled himself, becoming a slave. And while Jonah eagerly hopes for the destruction of Nineveh, Jesus is greater and weeps and aches over our cities and over us. Isn't Jesus greater? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, Lord, for being greater. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for being merciful and gracious towards us. Father, this week, I said a lot of things. And if I said anything that was not from your word, not from the heart of God, Lord, would no one believe it, no one hear it, and would you correct me? But Father, everything I said that was true, everything that was from this book, from your truth, let it transform our lives, impress upon our hearts forever. Give grace to every one of these students as they go home. Help them come up with a fight plan. Help them come up with a way to continue to grow and pursue you so that what happened this weekend at Hume was just the beginning, not the, the end, not the pinnacle, but just the beginning. Bless these students, bless the, the leaders, bless the pastors as they learn how to navigate and disciple and grow with these students. We love you, we thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.